Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Well, good morning, Springs Church. My name is Joshua, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here on staff of the church. And my beautiful wife, Nicole, and I have been part of the church since 2010. And we just, we love this congregation. One of our favorite parts about being members here at Springs Church is that our leadership, Pastor Michael and the elders, do such a phenomenal job of displaying a personal passion for Jesus that we get to enjoy as Pastor Michael brings the word. You can just feel it. It's contagious. So I love that we have a high view of Christ here at Springs Church. We also love that this is a place of prayer. We have a weekly prayer meeting every single Wednesday night, and we intercede for our families and the needs within the church and our nation and uh, the world and our missionaries. And as missionaries, my wife and I also love that Springs Church has a high emphasis on obeying the Great Commission and making disciples. So just those things in combination by themselves, and we're pretty sold. But one of the other things that we love, maybe even more importantly than all of those things, is that here at Springs Church, we have a high view for the word of God. We are a Bible-believing church. What does that mean? Well, if you pull up our website and you go to springs.church, uh, you will find our statement of faith. And our statement of faith says this concerning the word of God. We believe the Holy Scripture of both the Old Testament and New Testament to be the verbally inspired word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible, and God-breathed. Here's the deal. I've gone to Bible college. I've read the Bible cover to cover multiple times. But the Bible says some weird stuff. Like, did you know, for instance, that the Bible actually talks about unicorns? There are no joke unicorns in the Bible, but you're only going to find them if you're pure in heart. No, just kidding. Unless you're reading the King James Version. So I'm going to prove it to you. I'll throw it up on the screen. This is BibleGateway.com. And if you search in unicorns, you're going to get nine results in the KJV. Uh, and like my favorite here, Numbers 23, 22. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. Really rolls off the tongue. It's just poetry, right? Other translations are going to translate that as wild oxen. And people harp on the KJV for being antiquated and outdated, but I say heck with it. Like where else can you get a verse like James 1.21? I'll show it to you in the ESV first. This is how the ESV does James 1.21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Aw, that's good, but not as good as the KJV. <laughs> Listen to this. In the KJV, wherefore, didn't even know that was a word, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save ye souls. I mean, that is just amazing. 
So I love the Bible, that it has a little something-something for everybody. My, my daughters love that it has unicorns and rainbows and talking animals. My son loves that there's battles and giants and adventure and decapitations. My wife and I enjoy the poetry and Song of Solomon. Eh, married couples, am I right? You know, Our premarital counselors uh, told us that if I would read the Song of Solomon to my wife, that it would really enhance our marriage. Uh, no, actually, it wasn't. Um, because, you know, Solomon, he was a player for sure. Uh, and I mean, where else can you get great pickup lines like uh, Song of Solomon 7 to your belly is like a heap of wheat. Oh, <laughs> good one, Solomon. I'm underlining that one. Uh, I tried it out on my wife um, because uh, she's pregnant. And so I, I said, uh, baby, your belly is like a heap of, a big old heap of wheat. It must have had a different effect in Solomon's day um, because let me tell you, it did not go over well for me. And uh, she got pretty upset and I tried to defend myself and just say, baby, I'm just quoting the script, the holy scriptures to you. It's just a Bible verse. She said, you need to quote a different Bible verse. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, you know? But I love the Bible because there's all sorts of applications. Um, it, there's all sorts of weird things that it says. But you know what the Bible never says? And this will totally surprise you. The Bible never, not even once, says the words, Jesus loves you. Not once in the entire Bible does it say, Jesus loves you. And before you'd get out of your seats and, and leave the church. Just first off, stay for the whole sermon. It gets better. But secondly, um, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Biblegateway.com, again, ESV. If you search in the search bar, Jesus loves you, it will say, sorry, we didn't find any results for your search. Nothing, nada. Isn't that crazy? Because that's what we tell people all the time when we're trying to evangelize, when we're trying to tell someone about Jesus, we'll say, Jesus loves you. Like maybe you're at a restaurant and there's a waiter or a waitress, you'll write on the receipt, Jesus loves you. You'll tell them, Jesus loves you, come to church. Unbiblical. You know, the Bible actually only says, God loves you. That phrase, once in the entire Bible. I'll prove it to you, but before I do, any guesses of what book of the Bible it says, God loves you? Any guesses? John? Nope, not John. Deuteronomy. Not the book of second opinions. It's Deuteronomy. Well done. You must have heard the first service. Okay. Deuteronomy, and I have to warn you before I show this to you, it is a little bit scandalous. This is God's word, not mine. I didn't write it. Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 5 says this in the NASB. Try to use the most conservative translation I could find. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off, that's fun, 
may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one of illegitimate birth may enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, may ever enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, Lord your God was unwilling to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your, and here it comes, God loves you. So next time you want to tell someone about Jesus, you can't say Jesus loves you because the Bible never says that. You can say God loves you, but you got to read them the whole passage to really, you know, you don't want them to take it out of context because they might be a Moabite or Ammonite or something like that, right? So what is going on before you have a crisis of faith and be like, oh my gosh, God, do you even love me? It's not in the Bible. Uh, Here's my actual point. The Bible doesn't simply say Jesus loves you because that would be a gross understatement. The Bible doesn't say Jesus loves you so plainly, so tritely, because that would be a gross understatement. It would be less of an understatement to say something like outer space is big. Okay, outer space is big is not big. Big Macs are big. Dwayne the Rock Johnson is pretty big. Heck, even Texas is big. The universe is incomprehensibly massive. And to drive my point home, I want to play a a little bit of a video for you that shows accurate dimensions or measurements of the scale of the universe. And I'm going to talk a little bit while we're showing it. So, All of these measurements are given in kilometers of diameter. That's a straight line through the sphere from one end of the circumference to the opposite end. That's not even the circumference. You'd have to multiply it by pi, 3.14 to have that. So there's Mercury. Here's Mars, 6,800 kilometers in diameter. Venus, this next one at 13,000 is Earth. Now try to keep track of Earth It's going to disappear, but then you might be able to see it as it zooms out. Kepler-22b, Neptune, the planet nobody tries to pronounce. And then we're getting really massive. Saturn at 120,000 kilometers. Jupiter, okay, it's 100 times bigger than Earth. Proxima Centauri. And then this is our sun. Look at Earth. It's a tiny little speck. The one you probably see is Venus. Sirius A. 3,800,000 kilometers. (laughs) Arcturus. 36. That's our sun. You see that speck, that little yellow dot? You can't see it anymore. It's gone. Betelgeuse. I mean, it is the definition of narcissism that we have women that wear swimsuits and have a sash and we call them Miss Universe. Like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Okay, this is, you can't see it because it's a black hole. 60 billion kilometers, 400 billion kilometers. And then that's a nebula, 250 trillion kilometers. And then we start going into light years with the Helix Nebula. Orion's Nebula, again, Even the nebulas at this point are just looking like dots. 
Omega Centauri, 150 light years. Small, they use the word small here. Small Magellan Cloud. That's insane. That's the Milky Way. It's just a speck compared to that galaxy. It's just a speck compared to the booty void. I don't know what that's called. Uh, and then the universe at 150 billion light years in diameter. So hopefully you see with me that it's kind of idiotic, honestly, to say that outer space in the universe is big. The universe is not big. It is mind-meltingly, incomprehensibly massive. In the same way, Jesus doesn't just love you. That is a gross understatement. That is so demeaning. To think or to, to believe even worse that Jesus just loves, like, oh, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. Yeah, I know Jesus loves me is so incredibly demeaning. Rather, you and I must come to grips with what the Bible actually says, how God's love operates, how vast and how big it actually is. That if we had an accurate understanding, if we actually knew the real measurements of God's love, we would not be able to let it leave our lips. Jesus loves you, like some kind of trite, little cute sentiment. Jesus doesn't just love you. It doesn't do his love justice because the Bible goes to extravagant, over-the-top, great lengths to try to describe, to use language, to try to somehow communicate this incomputable concept of how vast and how great the love of God actually is. That's why the Bible never says Jesus loves you so plainly or tritely. So imagine if I were to remake that video but it was like homeschool edition, like a bad middle school teacher. I get out this whiteboard, okay? And I say, okay, class, uh, I'm gonna tell you about a planet called Earth. And um, it's, it's kind of big. I mean, it's pretty big. Uh, and we're, we're specs compared to it. But um, then there's the sun, and that's a lot bigger. And then there's a star that's even bigger than the sun. It's blue, um, and then there's like this, this black hole and it's really, really, really big. Uh, any questions? That would sorely fail to show accurate dimensions of the universe, right? Like the, the sense of scale is way off. Why? Because I'm using a whiteboard. And that whiteboard, proportionately, I can't, I can't contain it on a whiteboard. I'd have to draw out a graph that's bigger than our planet just to show one thousandth of a scale of how big some of these planets and galaxies are, right? So without an accurate representation of the scale, we're left kind of with a, a vague sense and an unmoving sense. It's not impressive. And yet that's exactly the kind of Christianity that we're peddling when we say something as trite as, oh, Jesus loves you, it epically fails to show the proportions of God's love. Jesus doesn't just love you. We have to reclaim the kind of faith, the kind of articulation that the Bible represents, or else we're gonna be left with a vague sense of God's love, an unmoving sense of God's love, an unimpressive sense of God's love, and our Christianity will be crippled because of that. Here's how this plays out practically. When we have a low view of the love of God, one that doesn't astound us or hurt our brains just trying to compute it, 
When we have a, a view of God's love that is cognitive, meaning we're, we can try to understand it, we think we can understand it, when it's relatable and it's commonplace, what will happen is we will inevitably feel insecure when situations arise in our lives that are difficult, where suffering occurs, things that make us feel unlovable, when we feel lonely, when we feel unseen, unheard, unappreciated, fearful, threatened, we will easily go to that place of feeling exposed and vulnerable and unprotected. God, do you even love me? Look at what's going on in my life. God, do you even see? Do you even care? Are you even there? Is your love real? Are you real? And for probably the majority of those in this room, you're like me. You don't, you don't doubt that God's love is real or if God loves you, but when difficult and hard times come, here's what you do instead. You just forget about it. It's, it's not your focus because it seems irrelevant to the situation that you're going through. We, we don't deny God's love. We just kind of minimize it. We just put it on the back burner. We don't deny God's love, but we certainly don't abide in God's love. And here's what happens when you're not abiding in God's love. When hard times come, we will start to feel stressed out and we begin to lash out at others. We begin to complain. We, our, our, our faith and our trust in God begins to crumble and dissolve. We start to backbite. We start to get angry and frustrated. We feel restless. We're not patient. We're not forbearing. We're not kind. Basically all the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13 of what it says love actually is. And we have this weird kind of view sometimes of 1 Corinthians 13 Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, so on and so forth. We, we almost view it in terms of like this one-way street where we're like, okay, this is a descriptor of how love acts. So if I am uh, being kind and being patient, then I am loving, which is totally true, 100%. But it's not a one-way street, it's a two-way street in which we need to understand that we can only love because he first loved us us, right? And so there's this, we have to understand that not only is this how love plays out, these are descriptors of what love is, and this is how we act when we're loving. It's also how we act when we abide in God's love, when we're resting in God's love, when we're receiving God's love, we're kind and patient. We don't envy. We don't boast. We have nothing to prove. We are bearing with one another. We're forgiving one another. We believe, we hope all things. We believe the promises of God. In other words, we're full of life. We're full of vigor and strength. But hear me on this. You won't get there with a shallow understanding of God's love for you. You won't get there with a cursory kind of, oh, Jesus loves me. Yeah, he loves you too. That's an acquaintance version of God's love. God invites you, Jesus invites you into the intimate version, the best friend version of his love. Have any of, uh, of you guys ever been to Niagara Falls? Oh, that's awesome. I have never been. I really, really wanna go someday because everybody that's gone tells me how impressive and incredible it is. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna watch a quick video 
about Niagara Falls or just walk, seeing kind of the water. And I want to tell you some facts as it's playing about Niagara Falls. So at, at Niagara Falls, 3,160 tons of water flows over Niagara Falls every second. That's over 6 million pounds of water every second. That's over half a trillion pounds. We can't even comprehend trillion, you know, not even a thousand, let alone a million, let alone a billion, let alone a trillion. But that is half a trillion pounds of water, eight trillion ounces of water every single day. So imagine the torrents of water, the eight trillion ounces of water represent God's love for you. And, and you're standing underneath. You are the object of God's love. It's just pouring out on you. And this little one ounce Dixie cup represents your heart's capacity to contain or to receive or to appreciate God's love for you. And so what we do when we have a heart that is not enlarged by his love, when we have a cursory understanding of his love, we go, God, do you even love me? God, do you even see me? Do you even care? Meanwhile, we're being flooded with his love. We say, God, it's really scary out there. I don't know. I don't know if you're with me. Or God, this, this, this Christian life is getting kind of dull. Ah, oh, I feel so dry. <laughs> I'm so parched. God, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I sinned. Is there, is there a clog in, in your pipeline? Like why, what? What's going on? Why do I feel so empty? God, did you turn off the faucet? How absurd. How ridiculous is that? If we had eyes of faith to see what God's love actually is and how the Bible actually describes it, we would quickly realize that we are drowning in the love of God. That we are being crushed by his love. In fact, here's the crazy part. God's love for you in reality is actually of exponentially greater quantity than the water flowing over Niagara Falls. In reality, it's probably belittling to compare God's infinite love with something like a picture of a waterfall on a small planet. But it's what our minds can sort of kind of comprehend. God's love for you is so extravagant and incredible and, and just incomprehensible, but it's also at the same time, meek and lowly. There's, there's kind of this sense that when we wake up in the morning uh, and we look at the snow-capped Pikes Peak or we look at the night sky with the thousands of stars and we go, oh God, you made all of that just for me? Just to tell me you love me? Just for little old me? No, not, not really. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that all of that creation was there so that we would look at Pike's Peak. We would look at the night stars. We would look at beautiful waterfalls and we would say, that did not happen by accident. And no little wooden idol made that either. There must be a creator and I must worship him. The creation points to the glory of the creator, right? And so think this all the way through. Could God write your name in the clouds 
and say, I love you with your social security number and like dazzling fireworks, just so you knew it was specifically you. Yeah, of course, but that would be chump change for him. Why? Because he has infinite creative power. He wouldn't break a sweat doing it. It doesn't cost him anything. You know what is unfathomably more significant, more costly, more meaningful is that the creator of all of this, of colossal stars and unseen galaxies and beautiful waterfalls would become a man. And he would dwell among us and experience all of the pain and suffering and rot that we experience. And then he, for the joy set before him, would go to a cross. He would be undeservingly hated. And in your place, in my place, he would hang there on the cross, the just punishment for sinners, criminals, and blasphemers like you and me. That is exponentially more costly, more significant, more meaningful than even Jesus writing, I love you. We only have to look at the cross and that determines our worth. That determines our value. That determines how loved you are. Beloved, God doesn't just love you. He loves you with an everlasting, incomprehensible love. Look at Romans chapter five, one through six. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, for you. And that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Since therefore you have been justified by his blood, much more shall you be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while you were his enemy, you were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now you are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As unimaginable as trying to compute the size of colossal stars is proportionate to the building you and I are sitting in. It should be unfathomably, inestimably greater to understand that God demonstrated his love for you, that while you were still his enemy, Christ died for you. If you didn't give God a reason to love you before you got saved, you don't have to give God a reason to love you now. If you didn't give God a reason to love you, you were still a sinner, you were still his enemy, you are a child of wrath, dead in your trespasses and sin, you do not have to give God a reason to love you now. He just loves you. This is absurd. I would put forth that there is nothing in the universe more absurd than the fact that God so loved you and me that he sent his one and only son to die in our place that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life, life perpetuating forever. It's insane. You didn't deserve it. You weren't lovable. You were unlovable. You were his enemy when he loved you. And lest we have some kind of demonic sense of entitlement, 
where we say, well, of course God would love me. I'm made in his image. Yeah, the image of God that we corrupted and distorted with sin time and time and time. You think about your failures, you're just replaying those time and time and time again. And every time, like a waterfall, he just gives you torrents of his love over and over again. Even when you're apathetic towards him, even when you know you're doing wrong, he never lets down. He never turns off the faucet. It's consistent for you. The Bible says, that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Lest you think that you've earned his love. The Bible says our righteousness, you on your best day, when, when everything you touch just turns into godliness, you on your best day in God's sight is like filthy rags. Literally in the Hebrew, it means menstrual cycle rags. He loved you while he was yet an enemy to you. The only one in the universe who has both undeserving and has the power to be exempt from death, undeserving of death, exempt from the power of death, was the very one who used his power to subject himself to death for the very ones most deserving of death and inescapable or didn't have the power to escape it. God doesn't gain anything from loving you. It only cost him. He doesn't have to love us. And if this isn't evidently and so obviously absurd to you, I would suggest that perhaps you haven't experienced it yet in the way that he intends it to be experienced. If we're not just like our minds are blown, then perhaps you have not taken the time to really meditate on it. If, if, if your heart doesn't just melt at the fact that Jesus died for us while we were still yet sinners, then maybe I would say you haven't internalized it. You haven't faced it toward yourself and said, Jesus, you did this for me. Jesus loves you. And it's understandable how we're not moved and impressed by the love of God when we flippantly say things like, oh yeah, Jesus loves you. He loves me. It's paltry. Well, here's what I want to do. Before we close, I want like the waterfall of torrents of God's love. I want to read a couple of scriptures to you. Who here today could use a fresh touch of God's love? If you're saying, oh man, I want to know how much God loves me. Pay attention. I want you to internalize. I want you to face these scriptures towards your own heart, okay? First, we're going to hit John 3, 16. And this is, it's cliche, unfortunately. Like if this was, uh, if there's a billboard chart of the top 50 Bible verses, this one would take the cake every single year. But we're gonna read this together with fresh eyes. Like it's the first time we've ever read it. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's break that down for a second. For God so loved me. For God so loved you. Already right there. That is like incredible, amazing news. God loves me. That's awesome. Yes. That's a win. How much? How much does God love me? What did I win? And he says, God so loves you that he gave his one and only son. Forget about winning the lottery. This is scandalous. This is obscene. As a father, I can't, I can't imagine taking my son and whom I love and saying, here, 
I'm gonna give him, I'm gonna put him on a cross for you. That's how much I love you. I'm willing to take the very best of heaven, my own son, and sacrifice him on the cross because I love you. That is absurd. That is obscene. That's insane. And then we continue on. It says, okay, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to earn God's love? How do I have to repay him? He says, nothing. Just believe in him. Anyone who would believe in him. Anyone? Me? A rotten sinner like me? I can just believe in him? I can, I can say, yes, Jesus, I know you died because you love me. And that's it? What's my price? Life. Eternal life. Life perpetuating forever and ever and ever. No more sickness. No more pain. No more sin. No more destruction. Guys, this cannot be cliche to us. You don't graduate from John 3.16. You don't say, oh, give me something more profound. I know John 3.16. No, you cling to John 3.16. John 3.16 is your future. It's the basket that you put all the eggs into. God loves me. He sent his only son to die in my place. If I believe in him, I have life in me. I have wells, springs of living water inside of me. Hallelujah. John 15, 9 through 13. John 15, 9 through 13. As, this is Jesus speaking. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. As, okay, you gotta get this. Like, come on guys, exercise some faith here. As the Father and Jesus, pre-eternally existent in loving communion for all of eternity, just loving each other, an infinite person, infinitely loving another infinite person. It's just being reciprocated for infinity, just perpetually. And he says, yeah, that same love I love you with. Not a derivative love, not a different version, mini version love, not an offshoot, not a subcategory, that exact same love that the father God looked upon his son and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He has all of my pleasure. He has all of my affection. I love him. And then that son lives 33 years of perfect, sinless obedience, does miracles, and for the joy set before him, endures a cross and is later raised. How much do you think, my question is to you, how much do you think the father loves the son? Incomputably. The, 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 all, the entire collective human cognition could not think of how much the father loves the son. And Jesus says, so I love you. Abide in my love. And then he tells us how to do that. Continuing on, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, as the Father has loved me. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
What is the greatest commandment in the entire Bible? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And the second greatest is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In these two things is all the law and all the prophets. In other words, you can summarize the entire Bible by just God saying, love me. I don't want you to do anything for me. Just love me. Love me with everything. I love you limitlessly. There is no end to it. Can you love me with the limited amount that you have? But I want all of it. All of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of your resources, would you love me with them? All of your energies, your abilities, would you love me with them? Would we just be in love? And that's how you abide in my love. That's how you know true joy is just by being in love. That's what the human heart craves more than anything. To be known fully and yet to be loved fully. To be known, warts and all, failures and shortcomings and all, things we don't even tell anyone else. God sees that and he loves you fully. He doesn't turn off the faucet. He doesn't slow down. It's torrents of his love for you at each and every passing second. The same love that the father loves the son, so he loves in you. And the only thing he says to do is just abide in it. Just remain here. Just be in love. And that's where true joy, true life, true contentment, the peace you've always wanted comes from. Just being in love with God. That's what the Christian life is all about. And it's not like the world can give. The, the cheap, manufactured love of the world. We, we know celebrities that have it all. All the riches and fame all of the adoration from fans, and they are worse off for it. Like Solomon, they just have a front row seat to how empty and plastic and cheap it is. But the love of God is not cheap. It is incalculably costly. First John 3.16, by this we know what love, true love actually is, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. God's definition of love is not some charming flourish. It's not beautiful as the world would see it. It's bloody. It's gruesome. It's horrific. It'll make your stomach turn. No one would look at Jesus, the son of God, being impaled on an imperialistic torture device called the cross and think, oh, how charming, how, how beautiful, how winsome. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I love you too. That's not the response. The response is you weep. You rend your existence over the fact that the, the blameless one, the true one, this being who dwells in unapproachable light, this, this gentle and meek and lowly man, who welcomed sinners, was a friend of sinners, who, who lifted prostitutes to their feet, who played with children, who hugged lepers. He was just brutalized. He just suffered an atrocious injustice. You see him there hanging on a cross and then it dawns on you, he did that for you. To tell you how much he loves you.
He calls you friend. No greater love is there than this, that one would lay his life down for his friends. He calls you friend by way of his murder on that cross. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, so it would still be insane and so, so worthy if Jesus died on the cross and then our response is, Jesus, you died for me. I vow to live the rest of my days for you, right? It's like, Jesus, you died for me. I'm gonna live for you. But, spoiler for our Easter services, Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he comes out of that grave and he appears to us and he says, look at the holes in my hands and my feet. And then before ascending into heaven, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to the right hand of my father and he ascends. And even presently at the right hand of the father is interceding on your behalf. He says, you are the apple of my eye. My affections are on you. I've adopted you into the family of God. You are a co-heir with me. You are seated with me in heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing is yours. That's how much I love you. There's nothing that I will withhold from you. I love you. That is insane. That is how you, you can't even imagine that. You can't make that kind of stuff up. It is ridiculous how much you are loved and we minimize it. Why? In hard times, we forget about it. We ignore it. Why would we do that? Continuing on Romans chapter eight, verse 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, like looking back at the laundry list we just did, what are we to conclude? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is presently indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So shall tribulation or distressing times, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or the rumors of a World War III, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> Nothing in all of creation, which is everything, will ever be able to unfasten you from the love of God. Jesus says, I have given my own life inside of you by the Holy Spirit. I'm coming back for you, my bride. There's never anything you will ever encounter in this life that I will not give you my spirit. I will not be with you in. My affections rest on you. Praise God. 
our conclusion should be, wow, if God did not spare his only son, but gave him graciously, here's my conclusion. God obviously likes me. God obviously loves me. God is obviously with me. And not in an entitled kind of weak sauce Christianity where I'm the center of the universe and he exists to serve me. No, in a way that transforms my entire life, my entire existence. God, I live now to love you. That's what my existence is all about, is pouring out my love and affection, receiving the love that you have for me, abiding in that love, and then turning around and loving you with everything. That is Galatians 2.20. That is the response of the mature believer. Last one, and then we'll close. I'll invite the worship band back. Ephesians chapter three, verse 14 through 21. Says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in, in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that the Christ so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints that's us what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do far more abundantly then all that we could ever ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is, okay, wait, 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 hold it. You'll, you'll get a chance. I have a hard time even communicating this last part. It's that insane. You have to, let's look at verse 14 again. For this reason, He's saying, this is the reason that I bow my knees before the Father. He's not talking about submission to God. He's talking about intercession to God. This is like the thesis of his intercession. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Essentially what he's trying to say, and it's hard to communicate, I'll try my best, is this. Paul is saying, when I have a big view of God, when I see God for who he actually is, when I'm not looking at the petty things going on, the situations, even if they're real in their heart, but I, I take my gaze off of my circumstance and I look at God, I just gaze at his magnitude and his beauty. You know what my knee-jerk response is? You know what the prayer that comes to mind. The prayer that makes sense to pray is to pray for strength that the church, the people of God, would understand God's love. Not intercession for the nations, not prosperity, not even salvation for the world. He says, when I have a right view of God, that he is sitting on a throne, with heavenly angels encircling him, screaming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Peals of thunder and lightning. When I see that, I get down on my knees and I pray, God, 
Would you give your church the strength to comprehend what is your love for them? That is insane. That is absurd. And you got to listen to Paul's prayer here. He's not even praying that you would understand the love of God. No, he prays for strength to understand what is the height of God's love. What is the depth? What is the breadth, the width, the length of God's love? He's praying to God saying, God, would you give your church and future generations, would you give Springs Church strength, emotional strength to be able to contain your love? Would you give them mental strength to dare to imagine the dimensions of your love? Would you give them mental, emotional, even spiritual, even physical strength to stand under the torrents of your love? To which there are no bounds. Listen, there is no, there is no ceiling to the highest heights of God's love for you this morning. There is no bottom to the depths of God's love for you. It's inexhaustible. There is no end to the unsearchable riches of his love for you as an individual. That's insane. It's like someone putting a gun to our heads and saying, you need, to, you need to calculate the dimensions, the accurate measurements of the universe or else you die. You need to be able to fathom what 250 billion kilometers is in diameter or else you die. You can't. It's impossible. That's why Paul prays for strength in our inner being by means of the spirit of God. Where am I going with this? We, church, must audaciously begin to imagine the dimensions of God's love or else we are spiritually dead. If we can't take a hold of this, if we can't grasp what God's love is, not just, oh yeah, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves me. No, when we say, we should just stop saying Jesus loves you and start saying, as the Father loved his Son, so Jesus loves you. Just as there is no height to the highest heavens and there's no bottom, what is the width, the dimensions of God's love, we need to use articulate language first for ourselves, but also for a world that desperately needs to see the love of God. Where we're at as a nation, where we're at in the global scene, we need the love of God. And a trite, simple, plain, Jesus loves you, will not do in this hour. We need strength to comprehend what is the actual biblical love of God. Our city desperately needs to know this love. Our young people who are killing themselves in droves. These guys are the same guys that are in our youth groups at our churches hearing about the love of God. They've not heard the kind of love of God that says there is no way that I could ever feel unloved, ever feel unseen, ever feel uncared for. My God in heaven has given the very best for me. 
In these dark hours, we need people, the people of God, to rise up and to, like a banner, proclaim the glory and the magnificence of the love of God for all the world to see. A ray of hope in these dark times. We can no longer play church games. We can't have an impotent, powerless Christian testimony. We need to have the certainty, the confidence that God is for me. He's with me. He'll never abandon me. He'll never forsake me. God loves me. And that is where I find my strength. That's where I abide. Stand with me. A Jesus loves me Christianity will not do. It's not for you. We must plumb the depths of his love. You need strength to be able to stand under the torrents of God's love for you. And this morning, we are gonna have an altar call and it's so simple. It's so easy. It's not complicated at all. All it is is just a coming up to the front. It's not the front that makes it special. It's just a response to everything that God's done. And you're just saying, Jesus, fill me again with your love, God. Increase the capacity of my heart to understand the dimensions of your love. God, give me a fresh touch of your love, God. God, I wanna hear, I've heard Josh preach, that's good. I wanna hear your voice. Lord, would you tell me you love me this morning? Come, come out of your seats now. Come to the front for a fresh touch. If you raised your hand and you said, I need a touch of God, I want you to come to the front. We're gonna have a little time here where we're just gonna pray and we're gonna ask God to give us a fresh touch of his love, a reset that we would reclaim the wonder of being loved by God. Come, come now. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. In your own way, I just want you to personally just start thanking him for his love for you individually, not as a theological idea, for you individually. Start thanking God for loving you while you were his enemy, while you were a sinner, while you were a blasphemer, while you had nothing to give him. He gained nothing from loving you and he loved you because that's who he is. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Jesus, God, thank you for loving me with an everlasting love, God. Thank you for loving me, God, when I didn't love you back. Jesus, thank you for loving me when I was apathetic towards you. Jesus, thank you for loving me when I loved other things more than you, when I had idols in my life and I wasn't paying attention to you. God, for my prayerlessness, for the times when I wasn't reading my Bible, you never stopped loving me even for an instant, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.